So I want to talk with you today about this man, John the Baptist, and Jesus' relationship to John the Baptist. Of course, there you see John's head on a platter, uh, as it was, as we see him last in the Bible. But Jesus uh, had a lot to say about John the Baptist. And uh, I think people still misunderstand him. Now, I don't think that John was Baptist, like we think of the word Baptist, that came about because uh, the idea of someone who baptizes, and that's what John was known for, for baptizing or immersing in the Jordan River, but that isn't what he means. Now, later in, in Jesus' ministry, Jesus and John were cousins, something like we would call cousins. John was about six months older than Jesus, from what we can tell from the early accounts of his life. We're not going to do much about those early accounts, just briefly. But they were about six months apart. So though sometimes we may picture John as an old man, he wasn't an old man when he was killed. He was a young man in his 30s when he was put to death, just like Jesus was, 30-ish to 33, something like that. So we would consider that a, a pretty young man. So let's kind of go to the middle of the story, then I want to go back to the beginning with you. Uh, the, the, the verse I had before you, the theme up above there is uh, here in Matthew chapter 11. Uh, Jesus has mentioned John, and as they departed, Jesus, some people, disciples of John come to Jesus. And John is in prison. He's locked up by Herod. He's going to be killed by Herod, as you just saw a picture of painting of that. But he's locked up and he asks, since he's been locked up, he sends word to Jesus, are, are you the Christ or should we look for another one? And Jesus simply answers back, you go tell John what you've seen. But you've seen the, the, the gospel preached to the poor, you've seen the sick healed, so forth, he lists some of the signs. You go tell John that. And don't any of you stumble because of John. Now, a lot of people have taken this story to be an indictment of John the Baptist, as if they're somehow their faith is better than John, because, oh, well, I, I don't question Jesus. I, I want to warn you again, people. I want to warn you again. Please do not speak ill of the people that God holds dear. And John the Baptist is one of those people. John the Baptist didn't lack faith, as we'll see. John the Baptist had a lot of faith in what God had said. He just wanted to make sure that Jesus was the right one because he intended to follow the right one. That's who it was. That's how much faith he had in God. Didn't he lack faith and so forth. But anyway, Jesus, and here's how I know this. It's just my opinion. They departed. Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? You know, the reports were as soon as John came on the scene, uh, people began to go all the way out to, into the Jordan River there, near the Jordan, uh, south of Jerusalem, to be baptized. And John, they began to hear him preach. He became very famous and popular in the wilderness there. He had two or three encounters, even the Pharisees, so we'll see. He said, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed and fine garments or soft garments. Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. 
John was the end of the prophets. All the prophets prophesied, the scriptures say, until John. He was the last of the prophets of, Mo, of the Old Testament. And he, he finished off all the prophets. And John, Jesus is going to say later, he may be the greatest of the prophets. But what did you go out to see? Why did you go watch this man? And some of you people here who are criticizing John, you went out to the wilderness. What did you go out to look for? We're going to talk about what did you go out to see. But I want to go back to the beginning of the story of John the Baptist just briefly. Here's a man named Zacharias. He was of the tribe of Levi. His turn came up and they rotated through 12 courses of priests. Excuse me, 24 courses of priests. There was just not enough work at the temple of services to have all the Levites of the tribe of Kohath and all of that there. And so they had to rotate in order, uh, usually by birth month or whatever. They had these courses that came along. And John, Zacharias was of the tribe, uh, was of the lineage of Abijah, of the course of Abijah. And so his turn came up and he was serving. And they probably only served in the temple maybe one week of their whole life. We picture these priests being there the whole life. The high priest would have been there for a long time, but the rest of them rotated in and out. And they got one week maybe of service in the temple for all the time they were a priest. And so John is there in this service and an angel appears to him. And he's greatly afraid when he sees this angel. And the scripture says in Luke 1, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. His wife is... His wife was childless. He'd been praying that she would have a child. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He also will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, that's a prophecy. John may not have understood that prophecy, but he says this son of yours is going to become a great man and he's going to be a prophet of mine. He's going to be odd and different and live in the wilderness, but he's going to turn the hearts of the people to God. John had one mission, to prepare the way by causing the people of of Israel to repent. Now, I was thinking about that a little bit this week as I thought about this lesson. There are a lot of people who, they talk about how to become a Christian, and they act like that, that this is all about some miraculous event that God just hits you with and you become a Christian. How did they prepare for Jesus to come? What was the preparation that was made? He taught the people that they needed to repent. Folks, before you become a Christian, you have to repent. You have to turn to the Lord. And you have to be willing to turn and give up what you've been doing. And he even specifies with the soldiers, you know, stop uh, taking, stop extorting people and be content with your wages. John's telling the people to bring forth fruits of repentance if the, because the Lord is coming. And you want to come to the Lord and have Jesus come into your heart, you need to be ready to repent. The scriptures even say in Matthew 3, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word at hand simply means near. It's right here. 
this, this, uh, my computer is at hand. I can reach out with my hand right there and touch it. That's how it's close. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. I don't know how true all of this is. We, when we were in Judea here three years ago in January, we went down south of Jerusalem, from Jerusalem, down that Jericho road, down toward the Dead Sea. We went down to the place that they now call, um, well, now I've had a mental block, toward the Dead Sea, Qumran, Qumran, went to Qumran, where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls and the caves there, and they, have, they had all this excavation they've done of the of the villages and all the buildings around Qumran that these priests, maybe Essenes, were living in. They, they apparently were priests. It's probably what they were doing in the wilderness there, they were making these scrolls that they used in the temple in Jerusalem. And so this people traveling back and forth, that priest and Levite were going down, probably going down to Qumran and down to Jericho to get the scrolls and other things they were using in the temple. They were going back and forth. And it's a very steep, narrow road. Maybe you've seen the video of me and Judy riding the camel. Well, that was halfway down at sea level, more or less. You come to this place. They got a turnout in the road. And the guy's you know, smart guy. He got himself a camel with a saddle and let you ride his camel for 20 shekels, whatever it was. I don't even know how much it was. A few dollars. In any event, we go there to this place in the desert. And the guide says, I don't know how true it is. He said, I kind of believe it, having been around here for a while and watched this, that, that this is where John the Baptist was raised. This isn't very far. You can see the Dead Sea. You can see the, where it comes in the Jordan River, you know, basically from there. He says, this is probably where he was raised among these Essenes or these priests living here in great isolation. They were very isolated there. And they didn't want anybody stranger, strange coming around. It's possible when he was a young man, John was given to these men, turned over to them to be raised to be this man in the wilderness. And he was ready, then he began to baptize people in the Jordan River. Now he had some other reasons for saying that. I don't know if any of that is true, but it looks like it's something could be something like that. You can see how it would happen that way from where he was. And so that's why it's the wilderness. And trust me, this is a wilderness. There's nothing in Florida like this. And there's not that many places in the United States probably as desolate, even out west, as this place there, around there, although it's not as large as that. He began to cry out, repent. There was people there because they heard him and they all came to him. Now it says about John, a little bit in verse 4 there, Matthew 3, Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. So he's got on this camel camel hair outfit. Not very comfortable. Rough. Something that you would use or have because that's what you had. You could butcher a camel or die or you'd butcher a camel to eat it and then you take the coat uh, take the skin, make a coat. Very uncomfortable. Not linen, not woven cloth, not soft, not comfortable. That's what they would wear. Because it gets pretty cold there at night in the desert. Or sometimes pretty hot, but he was wearing these kind of clothes. He wasn't a fancy boy with the latest style. Come back to that. And it says his food was locusts and wild honey. Locusts are like we would call them grasshoppers. 
live there. He's eating insects. He was way ahead of his time. This is the food of the future. This is what all your elite leaders want you to be eating soon is these grasshoppers. They want you to give up the cows and the pigs and the chickens. They want you to eat insects. So we consider this going backward. And I think that that's what they thought of it. That John was pretty backward if he's eating insects out here in the desert. And the wild honey's always interested in me being a beekeeper. So I always ask you the question. So when you think of honey, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking of going to Publix and buying one of those little plastic squeezable bears, you know, that you get the honey in. And it's all the perfect same color, no wax, nothing in there, no bee parts. And you take that and you put it on your biscuits. That's what you think of when you think, I'm going to get me some honey. Help the fellow get some honey out of his beehive yesterday. It's not like that. Okay? And we were doing a pretty tame version of in a, in a, in a nice hive. It's all set up and properly done. And I got a smoker and tool, you know, and all that stuff. And so I got the honey out for him and we extracted honey, all that kind of stuff. How did John get his honey out there in the wilderness in the rock? You can see from all the, the cave, I should have put a picture up here of this. The reason they had these Dead Sea Scrolls stored there is because in all that hillsides and country, all this rock, there were holes and caves and crevices in this. And that's where they would carve out a little entrance, go in there, they could store things. It was, it was cool and dry in there and they would store things they'd keep. Keep their food in there, keep their scrolls in there, keep everything inside these caves. That's where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. But the place is full of bees too. They even found in Qumran, they showed it when we were there, and I couldn't leave my eyes. They had the, this is the honey room. This is the place where they kept, processed their honey from the beehives around here. Uh, apparently these priests there at Qumran kept bees or had access to them out there in the wilderness and they processed honey in here. And we got some samples. They were, they had found samples of it in there. How did John get the honey? Not from Publix. He went out there with his bare hands and took the honey away from the bees. And trust me, they don't like that very much. Most of you big strong men wouldn't do it. When I asked you to go take care of bees with me, you back up a foot. Just me asking you, you back up a foot when I ask you to do it. John wasn't that kind of fellow. He went right in there and got the honey. Because that's what he had to eat. Anyway, just a thought. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around Jordan went out to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan confessing their sins. So here's the repentance. Here's the confession of the sins. And here's being baptized in the Jordan. But when many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said that when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, Snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. So don't think that because you say you're religious and you're a child of Abraham, it's going to save you from the wrath to come. You need to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. And there are way too many so-called religious people who do not have any, have not shown any signs of repentance. They're still living exactly the way they want to live. Some of them are even running mega churches. And they're living exactly the way they want to live with no sign of repentance or any change in their heart or life and they keep doing it uh, the same way it was then. And John said, even now the axe 
axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean his threshing floor and gather his wheat to his barn, but he, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So here they put, they had, you can find these places in Israel, uh, a bare rock, a flat place, they'd flatten out on a rock, chalky surface, usually high on a hill where it's windy, and they put all the grain on there, and they'd cr- crush the grain with the ox or uh, with their feet, and they'd take a winnowing fan, lots of little fingers on it, and they'd throw it up in the air. All the chaff would blow away, and all the grain would fall to the ground, and they'd harvest the grain. That's how they, they'd have machines like we do to do the same thing. Uh, and we use the same principles, but they used it. That, that's what a winnowing fan. So he says, the Messiah is coming, he didn't name him here. He does later. He's coming and he's got a winnowing fan in his hand. He's going to separate you people out. He's going to separate the chaff from the wheat. God's word always separates. We talked about this briefly a couple weeks ago. That from the very beginning, God said, let there be light. And he divided the light from the darkness. When God made the light, he divided the darkness away. And then he divided the land from the sea and divided the firmament from the firmament. The, God's word, and it says, and God said, and God said, and God said, that's God's word. And all through Genesis 1, it was dividing things. Jesus said, don't think I came to bring peace on the earth. I came to bring a sword and to divide a, a, a mother from her children and so forth. He, he, his word divides It separates the people that will respond to his word and those who will continue to do what they want to do. It separates those who want to obey God from those who want to follow their heart. There, I use that expression again. Those who want to follow their heart will go the way they want to. That's the chaff that will be blown away. Those who want to follow God will repent and turn to God, follow him. And he says the Messiah is coming to do that. So let's go back and take a look at this a little bit. This man John was an electrifying figure. God did this on purpose before Jesus came, who was of a completely different nature than than John in many ways, at least his present how he presented himself was. John was an electrifying figure. He had uncut hair. He wouldn't drink with it with any kind of wine with them at all. Lived in the desert eating locusts and honey isolated, living in some cave or some rock or under a tree or something, not like the Pharisees and Sadducees or even the common people, preaching this method, message of repentance. Oh, the scribes and Pharisees, they could go into great detail about this statement in the law and what it means and this and the other and that. John came preaching repentance. It's more basic than that. It's right down to where you're living. That's why he's telling the soldiers what to do with it. So Jesus is talking to these people later. They're asking about John. That they see, oh, well, well, they see these men come and ask it. John wants to know if you're really the Messiah. And he tells them and they go away. And he can see the smug look on their face. Well, at least we're not doubting. We, you know, we're with you, Jesus. John can doubt all he wants. Jesus saw that smugness. And he said to them, what what are you thinking here? What kind of man do you think John was? You looking down on John because now he finds himself in prison? 
and maybe he's wondering what's really happening here. Don't you dare do that, Jesus says. Would you go out to sea? A reed shaken by the wind? You think John is doubting? You think John is a, 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 a you can see how the wind blows? You know, out in, we lived out in the prairie in Illinois in the grain. You could see any little bit of breeze in the grain because it just go across the, it looked like waves going across the grain. The little bit of breeze would make it all move. You could see the waves of air going across. So do you think that's what John is? He was, he's just waving in the breeze because he doesn't really know what he thinks. He said, you're wrong about that. You, you wouldn't have gone out to see him if you thought that's the kind of man he was. You wouldn't have walked all the way from Jerusalem to the wilderness to listen. Nobody would have if he was that kind of fellow. I like our politicians. One year they take this position. The next year they take this position. And then they're back to the other position. You never really know what they say. You ask the White House a question, well, I'll have to circle back to that because they don't really know what they want to say today. You think that's the way John the Baptist was? Jesus is saying to these people. What'd you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? You think he's some fancy boy? Intellectual? No, he's a man made firm by his lifestyle, the way he lives. And he does not living in a king's house. What you got to see a prophet? He says, Morris, yes, I say, that's the only reason you would have went, really, because you thought he was a prophet. And he's more than a prophet. So let's look at that. What'd you come out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? No. You know, this man believed in God's word, his promises. It was evident by his life. <clears throat> All of us come up against the word of God and we come up against real life and sometimes we wonder why it's like it is why is it that people that serve the Lord sometimes suffer unimaginable kinds of catastrophes in their life and suffering we wonder how is that how can that be we wonder why God lets things be like they are sometimes all of us have that but that doesn't make you a reed shaken by the wind that makes you a normal human being who wonder why things are like they are. But he says, John is the kind of man who believed, and he believed so much in God's promise that when he didn't see Jesus doing what he thought he was going to be doing, he wondered if it was, he was the right one. Tell me, am I following the right person? He was a man of iron will and iron purpose. He never wavered from that. And uh, you who would criticize John the Baptist now, or think yourself to be superior, you need to remember, you know, Jesus is saying, why you're now my disciple. You're only my disciple because John came first and taught you to repent, sorted out the ones who wouldn't follow. And so in this, in John's life, you see that, uh, He wasn't a failure, although very soon he would be viewed as a failure. A lot of people look at this and say, John was a failure. Look, he died in prison. Is that really true? It's interesting. He was only 30 years old or so. And I think about that. We view people, we view people's lives and we think, well, this person died young, we'll say. And so their life is, we'll say, cut short. 
Their life is not meaningful. We want somebody who lives to be 80, 90, 100 years old. Now that person lived a, a good life. This person has died in their 30s or 40s, maybe not so much. I, I'm not sure that's right. I understand that, and I kind of feel that way sometimes. But I don't think that's how God looks at it at all. He doesn't look at your life and measure whether it's a success or a failure, a good life or a bad life, based on the number of years that you live. He looks at it based on what you do with that life that you have and whether you have faith, even if you only have faith for a short time. John the Baptist lived from the time he began to preach to the time he was executed. Couldn't have been more than three or four years. By the time he got grown up there and began to preach to the time he was beheaded. And he spent part of the time in prison before he was beheaded. What a waste, we think. Now you think of poor John there. He's sitting in this pit, sitting there as a prisoner. And day by day, days go by. These were not pleasant prisons either, by the way. They were just holes cut in the ground, usually with no windows or anything. They let you down by a rope into a hole in the ground, and that's where you stay. They throw food down to you sometimes. No, all the, all the waste, everything is in there with you. Maybe other people have died in there. You're stuck in that hole. Can't get out. And then one day, they come and drag John out. One evening, probably. They come and drag John out, take him up into the top of the building, and just pull out a sword and whack his head off. Right there. There's no ceremony. There's no trial. There's nothing. One minute he's living and thinking and praying. Next minute his head's being whacked off. And they drop his body down and leave his body there. And they take his head to the girl that wanted it so she can show it to her, mo- to her mother. Disciples came, it says, and got the body and buried it. What happened to the head? Nobody knows. Doesn't even say, does it? Poor John. Born, born a special son, a son of hope to Zachariah and Elizabeth. They may even be alive still, who knows? They gave him up to serve the Lord as a young man, and now he ends up with his head whacked off and not even buried in one piece, most likely. What's God think of this man? God doesn't look at it that way. That's how we look at it. He looks at this man's life completely differently because he was a man of iron will and a purpose. Notice this passage. Here's how he got where he was. How did he get in prison? Well, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Herod is married to Herodias. Herodias had previously been married to his brother, which was against the Jewish law, apparently. He'd been married to his brother at that she had. And now, because she's one of those kind of like uh, Madonna kind of women, we know this from history, Cruella de Vil, kind of, isn't she a real historical figure? Didn't she raise Dalmatians or something? But anyway, uh, Cruella de Vil kind of person. And here's why John's in prison. Because he had, John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So apparently sometime in the past, Herod hears about this man 
this man John the Baptist, either he goes down to the wilderness or more likely he has John drug up to Jerusalem to have an audience with this great prophet that he sees. And when John gets there, he says, yeah, that's Herodias. That's your brother's wife. You don't have any right to have her as a wife. Well, Herodias wasn't very happy about that. And so she said, throw him in prison. So they threw John in prison. He had such an iron will and conviction about right and wrong, what was good or bad. He wasn't afraid to say the truth when time came to say it. He told the most powerful man that he would ever meet, most likely, that on earth, that. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. And when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. So her daughter danced uh, in a dinner. You know, they had entertainment. And, and this was it. Probably had, a, you know, some kind of little band playing. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. He was so enthralled with this young woman's dancing, here it was, being an immoral man. Whatever you want, honey, I'll get it. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And I I like that word here. They're at the dan- They're at this big feast. And she says, oh, so you like my dancing? She goes and whispers to her mother. Mother says, have him bring John the Baptist's head here. Not I don't want you to tell me you killed him and you did something with him. I want you to cut off his head and bring it from the prison to this beautiful dinner and present me the head on a platter so I can see it right here. And all these other people can see what kind of power I have against those who cross me. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded to be given to her. And so he sent and had John beheaded in prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. What a pair they must have been. Instagram, I wonder how many followers they had on Instagram back then. These are the kind of people that you're, these are the kind of people that you're following. These are the kind of people that are running much of the important places in our society. These kind of women and weak men like Herod. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and went and told Jesus. So you came out to see a soft man, blown around by the wind because he's asking questions. And I said, no, you, you wouldn't have went out there. That's not the kind of man John was at all. What did you come out to see? Did you come out to see a man clothed in soft raiment? You think you'd have went to the wilderness to see uh, some fancy guy in king's clothes? John, can I say the word effeminate in public anymore? John was not effeminate. Or fancy. The Bible uses the word, so I'll use it. And, you know, I wear pink shirts once in a while, but, but that's not what effeminate means. The kind of guy who's somewhat afraid, a metrosexual, who's actually ashamed of his manhood, maleness, and therefore tries to act like a girl or a woman and be so that he, and soft, that's the idea. Or that has, is the kind of guy that he can't go out and do anything unless his hair is perfect and he has on his special designer shoes and pants that match and, and of course, no socks, uh, and, uh, certain kind of sandals and a certain shirt that matches that. He cannot be appear anywhere because he's that kind of guy. Is that, would you go out in the wilderness to see that kind of guy? 
you wouldn't. His lifestyle, then, he was an out he was an outlier, and his appearance, his lifestyle, was outside of the norm, because it reflected that what was in John was outside the ordinary. The principles that he lived by that motivated John were out of the ordinary and therefore his appearance and his lifestyle was out of the ordinary from that day. And it speaks to something that's different. And I don't know when we're going to learn that, that we can't live like the world. We want to follow all the people we see around us in the media. We want to follow their dress, their lifestyle, the way they think. And yet we want to be something different than they are. How, how does that work? How's it work? I don't know which comes first, the changing of the outward appearance or the inward. Usually the inward change happens and the outward changes. Met a young lady the other day. It's true for girls too. John was not effeminate, but no. Uh, this young lady was fi- effeminate, was feminine. Feminine. Is that a word? She was female. And what impressed me about her when I saw her in a certain situation is she wasn't all painted up. Her hair was not specially coiffed to give a certain appearance so that it falls a certain way across the eye. And, you know, and everything has to be. And her clothing was plain, modest and plain. And she carried herself like that. And I thought, wow, that's really impressive. Now, well, Mike, that's because you're old. Maybe, or maybe it's because I've seen a lot of the other kind of women. I knew a lady one time, and I don't want to speak ill of her because she was a good person, but I felt sorry for her. She had breast cancer. And she had a hard life. And some of this was came because she had been abused. But when they're re- they were ready to wheel her into the operating room, for a mastectomy because she had bad breast cancer and she wouldn't go because she didn't have any makeup on. Until she put her makeup on, she wouldn't go. Now, she had reason perhaps for that, but there's a lot of people like that. A lot of people like that, both men and women. Even the men, they can't go until they get their makeup on. No, John wasn't that kind of person at all because he didn't need the, those things didn't mean anything to him. The outward things that the world thinks are so valuable didn't mean anything to John at all. That's what his lifestyle represented. And affluent men don't often have conviction and purpose. Affluent men are concerned about how to make money, how to keep money. They don't have conviction and purpose about the important things of life. doesn't involve making or keeping money. They're not interested in it. And so... His lifestyle reflected a striking contrast to the people around him. And therefore, you know, his lifestyle of godliness and morality and righteousness and all that single-mindedness was so different. He was peculiar in the face of of pressure to conform. I wish we could learn this somehow. I wish I knew how to apply this to our day and age in the right way. In my own life and the lives of others, teach other people that. 
You know, John's, John's mission was to separate people, was to call those who would respond to the Lord, pull them apart from the crowd and teach them how to repent, to prepare the way for the Lord. We think we're going to, uh, the, the way that the people, well, there's a whole big evangelical thing about winsomeness. The way we're going to convert the, the common culture is to be nice, to be nice enough that they want to become Christians. We should be nice. You know how much I preach about that. But I will tell you in the end, being nice won't make anybody a Christian. It takes something else. It takes conviction. And so being nice and fitting in and all those things in the end, they don't work. Not to teach people to become. And especially as the world becomes darker, they don't work. All right, we've got to move on. We're quickly way out of time already. Did you come to see then... A man of sovereign? No. His peculiarity helped him not to be deceived by these outward appearances. And, and this peculiarity was the best way for him to communicate his message of repentance. Sometimes the best way you can communicate the fact that the message you have as a Christian is something different than what they're hearing is by what people can see of you. That you don't act the same way they, the people do. You don't talk the same way they do. You have different values than they do. And they can see these things. At that time, they might not appreciate it, but there's coming a time when the Lord visits them, as the scriptures say, that they might see that. Well, uh, what did you come to see, a prophet? And the answer to that is yes. I think they did come because they thought he was a prophet. Oh, they misunderstood, many of them did, but that's why they came. If our life is going to make any difference in the common culture that we live in, it's going to be because people think that we have something they don't have, which is the word of God. That's what prophets are. Prophet's a simple word for a mouthpiece. Now, I don't say that all of us are prophets, but we can teach, we can live the prophets, and that means to teach and live the word of God. And so there's something different about this person. He isn't moved by the latest what's hot and what's not list, or, or what's on TV this week, or whatever the case may be. Everybody this week is in March Madness, and so we got to get all caught up in that. Next week, last week it was Chinese balloons, and I don't know what it's going to be the week after that. We're all caught up in everything that comes along, and we get drifting away from living the right kind of life and being an example. So humility before God, and he recognized his place. This should say he recognized his place in the world and was content in it. He was content where God put him doing what he was going to do. We teach our young people they've got to strive to change the world. They shouldn't be content until they're doing something that will change the world. I want to make a difference. And you've heard me say before, John Wayne Gacy and Ted Bundy made a difference. So did Adolf Hitler. How about let's make a difference for good? And you can make that difference for good by being who you are, where you are, doing what you should be doing. You can make that difference. If you're following God's will, may make a difference only for one or two people in your lifetime, but that'll just reverberate down through generations. But we want to change the world by doing some social activist thing, and that's not how God's people changed the world before. Even the least of us, though, strangely enough, is greater than John the Baptist. He said, John is the greatest man born among women. Did you get that? You who want to put John down? He was the greatest man born among women. That's a pretty high praise. Never been a better man than John. 
And yet he says, anybody that's in the kingdom is greater than John. Why? Because he has the truth knowledge about me, the Messiah. Well, our time has gone this morning. Thank you for listening. This was a, this was a simple hearted servant. And I want to encourage you to think about that. Be content with your place as a simple hearted servant who wants to continue to keep repenting before God and turning your heart toward God. You will have an impact in the world. You may not see it easily, but you'll have an impact. Don't be afraid to stand out. Don't be afraid to be different. Serve the Lord. Thank you for listening. Our, our service is now going to turn to what we call an invitation. This is a time based on perhaps what you've heard or maybe other things before that when you have an opportunity to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have an opportunity to be baptized for the remission of your sins, that baptism that John referred to that Jesus was bringing. You can be baptized for the remission of your sins this morning. Or perhaps you need to repent and turn away from the way you've been living. We'll pray with you about that right down here at the front if you'll come. Can we help you today? Let's stand and sing. Come to the front.